What we've been doing this semester at RUF is that we've been trying to answer the question every single week, how is Jesus relevant to your life? And so we've tried to go about answering uh, that question of, of how is Jesus relevant to your joy? How is Jesus relevant to your pain? How is Jesus relevant to your authority, to your doubt, to your cynicism? And tonight we're going to try to answer the question, how is Jesus relevant to your Jesus? Basically, your view of who Jesus is. How does the real Jesus square with the Jesus that you have in your head? So to that end, uh, let's look at Mark chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 27 and just read the, um, the passage that's printed for you. So if you would, let's, let's look at it together. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he then, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, I'd like to invite you to pray with me before we look at this together. So let's pray. Father, I pray that in these next few moments, as we turn our attention to this passage, I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us. You know that we have no hope of understanding this passage apart from your Holy Spirit's uh, intervening help. So please come now and teach us. And to that end, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've told this story to some of you before, so this will be familiar. But for a lot of you, you, don't, you haven't heard this. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I was uh, asked to, to um, speak at this camp in Colorado, basically to promote the seminary at this, this kind of Christian camp out there in Colorado. So this whole time, I was coordinating with this woman in this Christian camp out there named Barbara. Never knew Barbara, never had seen her, didn't you know, have any sort of connection with her. We were just emailing, talking, and so the situation was is that I was going to fly into the Colorado airport, and we didn't really talk about how we were going to link up. I just figured it would happen. And so fly over land and I do what anyone would do is just kind of make their way to the baggage claim which I did and sure enough there's this sweet older woman standing there holding a sign that says Matt and I'm Matt and so I walked up to her and uh, you know her face lit up she put down her sign and she gave me a hug and I'm thinking oh okay this is I wasn't expecting like an embrace by this woman I didn't know. Um, and I could tell it was, it was getting a little awkward because she was hugging me for a little too long. You know how that's like, the embrace is just, a, it's just, a, okay. And then so she began to um, lean back, but she was still holding me, but leaning back and looking at my face. And she took one of her hands and started saying, Matt, you have changed so much. 
And I realize this is not Barbara. And um, this old woman is still hugging me. And so I very, had to, I very had, you know, awkwardly had to tell her, I'm not the Matt she's looking for and you're not who I'm looking for, which didn't make the situation any better because she had to pick up her thing and still stand there and I had to basically stand two feet away from her to wait for my luggage. So it was just an all-around bad situation. Here's, here's why I'm talking about this. It's because knowing who somebody truly is radically affects how you relate to them. Knowing who somebody truly is radically affects the way that you relate to them. And in our story tonight, Jesus raises the million-dollar question. He says, okay, who am I? Who do you think that I am? And one of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, totally misses it. He blows it. And, And so if Peter can miss this question, we can as well. So what I want to do tonight is I just want to look at this passage, and I want to try to answer two questions, just two. Who Jesus is, and then who we are in light of who Jesus is. Okay, so those are the two questions I want to answer. Who Jesus is, and then who we are in light of who Jesus is. Okay? So let's look at who Jesus is. This question that Jesus raises is is really, I think, very interesting. But not only is the question interesting, uh, the answer and the answers given are interesting as well. So let's look at the question and the answers. The question is this. Jesus is hanging out with his entourage, his disciples, and he asks them, okay, who do the people say that I am? And they give his answer, and then he kind of makes it a little bit more personal. He goes, oh, okay, okay. But who do you say that I am? Which is really interesting if you think about it. I mean, if you think about it, um, Jesus is basically implying with this question, look, I've been around you a long time, but the most important thing for you to get settled and for you to get figured out is who I am. It's not necessarily my teaching to figure out my views on this or that. The most important issue for you to figure out and to get settled is my identity, me. That is the question. Now, if uh, an ordinary teacher just stood up, just take me for example. If I stood up and said, okay, everybody, who does App State say that I am? And y'all be like, um, if they know you, they would say, you're Matt Howell, the RUF guy, I guess. I mean, I don't know what you're looking for. But what if I said, okay, but no, no, no. Who do you say that I am? You'd say, okay, RUF is getting really weird. Um, this, is, this is really obnoxious. I mean, Matt is very obsessed with himself. And so, and so that's, the, that's the issue. If, if Jesus is just some regular, ordinary teacher, then this question is weird and should be dismissed, and he should be dismissed as a total nutcase. But if he's not, if he is who he claims to be, if he is God incarnate, then this question really is everything. Everything kind of stands or falls on how we answer this question. Here's another observation that's, I think, interesting about this question, is the way that Jesus presses us to give a personal answer. I mean, he's just not content with you to say, okay, who do do the people say that I am? And here's why I think that's important. It's because for you and me, it does not matter how your church answers that question. It does not not matter how your family answers that question. It does not matter how your friends answer that question. You have to get that thing settled for yourself yourself. Who do I think Jesus really is? You know, our, our daughter, Zoe Kate, who I just mentioned a, a moment ago, she's going to grow up as a PK, 
a, a preacher's kid, a pastor's kid. And one day she's going to go through high school and she's going to graduate and she's going to have to step out and, and, and go off to college on her own. And it's, it's not going to be enough for her to have been raised in, in a Christian family. We can't give her our faith. She is going to have to settle that question herself. And the thing is, is that you, you do as well. You can't just sort of ride on the coattails of what other people believe. You have to have that question settled yourself. Who do I think Jesus is? And being around a Christian crowd is not enough either. Just saying, hey, I like Christian groups. They're fun. They're moral. They're good people. It's just not enough. You have to answer that question. Who do I think Jesus is? That's the question. Let's look at some of the answers now, okay? Here's the first answer that's given. The cultural understanding. Okay, so look at verse 27 again. It says, on the way, uh, he asked them, who do people say I am? And then they all replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And, And so this is basically what they're thinking. They think that some of these biblical characters that have died have actually come back, kind of, I guess, reincarnated somehow in the person of Jesus. And, and, and they say, well, you're like John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as, as some of you may know, um, was a prophet. It's sort of a technical Bible term that basically means somebody who is, who is a messenger of God. They, they speak the words that God wants them to say. And so that's kind of the same idea with Elijah. He was an Old Testament prophet. And so basically, the summary answer at the end of the day for them is that you're a prophet. Maybe um, you even, you know, you do these miraculous things. Basically, they're saying... You're, you're a really good teacher that incorporates special effects to kind of get across your good teaching. And that's sort of the answer of, of the culture at that time. Which is really interesting if you think about it. Because that's just not the answer given in this sort of ancient context. <laughs> that's the answer given in our modern context. You know, we, we want to know, okay, who is Jesus? Sort of, if you asked anybody on the street, most people would say, he was just a really good teacher. He's a good teacher. That's the thing that's important about Jesus is his teaching. Death and his resurrection, that stuff is weird, mythical, bizarre. I don't know what I think about that. The teaching is the stuff that's really important. You know, he taught about forgiveness and love and turning the other cheek, justice for the poor. That's what I like. That's the good stuff. Now, I'm about to read you probably the most famous quote by C.S. Lewis. And the reason why it's so famous is because he takes basically that idea and he says, if that is your answer to the question, who is Jesus? And your answer is, he's a really good teacher. C.S. Lewis makes this point that that's a really crappy answer. In my words, not C.S. Lewis's. But, But here's what he says. Let me just read it to you. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic uh, on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg. I'm a poached egg. Um, Or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. I think he makes a pretty good point. 
I mean, the, the point is basically this. Jesus taught that he was God. If he is not God, you can't say that he is a good teacher. That disqualifies his good teacherness, right? Like if every single week at RUF I stood up and said, Look, y'all, I am God, and I can forgive your sins, and I will come back one day and I will fix the entire universe. You can't leave and say, Dude, that guy was a great teacher. I just disagreed with everything he said, though. Right? I mean, this doesn't really make any sense, but that's the cultural answer, and it's not a good one. So then Peter gives his answer. So, so look at this next thing. If you look in verse 29, Peter goes, you are the Christ. And he gets the answer right. A plus on the Jesus quiz for Peter. Because if you look in the very next verse, Jesus is like, okay, I'll just keep that on the DL for a little bit until you know, we, can, we can get this thing twerked out a little bit. Okay? So, um, but what does Peter mean by the word Christ when he throws that out there? What does that mean? Because that's... You know, people think that's Jesus' last name, like he's Mr. Christ. It's not his last name. It's a, it's a technical title. And that title means basically anointed one. It, it is somebody who is set apart by God's spirit for a specific task. And so there were all these Old Testament prophets that talked about one day there would be one who would come who would be set apart to fix the world. Somebody would come in and, and totally restore everything that's broken about the world. And Peter is looking at Jesus and saying, that is you. You are the Christ. Here's where it gets interesting. Jesus wanted, or, or Peter wanted Jesus to be this Christ, this Messiah that would come and would triumph with victory. He did not want somebody who was going to be weak. And uh, he wanted someone who was going to be overthrown by he wanted somebody who was going to overthrow their enemies, not be killed by their enemies. And Jesus pulls him aside after he has just taught that I've got to suffer and die. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, what are you talking about? I am not okay with you saying those sorts of things. What in, what in the world has gotten into you? He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You, do not, you, are not thinking like a, you are not thinking like God right now. You are thinking like man. You want me as your Messiah to come through with victory and triumph, but I'm coming to suffer and to die. That's the game plan here. How does Peter miss it? Because, you know, in, in one sense, he gets it right. On paper, he says, you are the Christ. On paper, it works. But then when he begins to kind of flesh out what he means by that, he wants a powerful, strong Messiah, one who's going to come in and start rocking the boat. And Jesus says, uh, I'm actually going to come in to uh, die. I'm a weak, suffering Messiah. How does Peter get it wrong? Here's how. Ben Folds is coming here in a few weeks. He's a great musician. He's a personal fave of mine. And in his, uh, I don't know, one of these previous albums, he, he has a song that he sang with Regina Spector called You Don't Know Me. And it's the song, it's a story about this couple that has basically settled for this very shallow plastic relationship with each other. And so here's, here's the first line. I think it's written from the guy's kind of perspective. But he, sa- he says this, I want to ask you, do you ever sit and wonder, it's so strange how we could be together for so long and never know, never care, what, what goes on in the other one's head? We could be together for so long and never know what goes on in the other person's head. We just don't know each other. And so it's this picture of this couple that's like sitting together in the, ca- not the cafeteria, the, um, <laughs> the cafe. And um, they don't know each other. They, they have settled for this 
let's not ask each other real questions about each other and just sort of have this shallow, basic, plastic relationship. And here's the line of the song that just totally nails it. Here's what he says. You could have just propped me up on the table like a mannequin or a cardboard stand-up and paint me any face that you wanted me to be seen with. That's the line. You could have propped me up like a mannequin or just a cardboard stand-up, paint whatever face you wanted on it. That's the relationship. And that is what Peter is doing. He's saying, you know, I like to think of you as the Christ even though it doesn't really resemble you, I like to kind of create my own cardboard stand-up, and that's what he's done. He has this mannequin, this sort of man-made cardboard stand-up that he's put Jesus over the top of and said, this is what you're supposed to be like. And Jesus says, that's not me at all. You don't know me. And if we're honest, I think that we do this too. I do this too. All the time, if you think about it. Here's some of the ways that we do this. It's when we say things like, Well, I like to think of Jesus as fill in the blank, and then whatever you put in that blank, it has no no connection to the way that Jesus is revealed in Scripture at all. So, for example, we say things like, well, I like to think of Jesus as just being loving and forgiving and sort of saving everybody and not being judgmental at all. Or we say things like, well, I just like to think of Jesus as not really caring about what I do, or at least not really caring about what I do, because he's into the forgiveness thing, and I'm into the sinning thing, and so this is a great relationship. So he doesn't really really care about holiness and obedience, because he's just going to forgive me anyway, right? That's kind of how we do this. We just kind of craft this cardboard cutout of, that's how I like to see Jesus. Or one way that we do this is we develop certain expectations and behaviors that Jesus is supposed to fulfill, We kind of erect our own sort of standards that he's supposed to fulfill. So in other words, when we say things like, um, God, I uh, worship you, I read my Bible, I go to church, and I study really hard, so how could you let me get a C on this test? Especially when that dude over there who doesn't give a rip about you and studied two minutes before the test got an A on it. That is unfair. You see how we're doing that? We, we have this expectation that, that Jesus is supposed to behave in a certain way, and when he doesn't, we get mad. Or another way that we do this is we just say, we just imagine God is basically being uh, Santa Claus in the sky that just kind of wants us to be 100% happy all of the time. And so we say things like, well, he would never, con- he, he would never want to confront me about my decisions, my lifestyle decisions. He, he wouldn't want me to break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. He he wouldn't want me to stop getting hammered every single weekend because he knows that these things are fun. These things are making me happy. And so he wouldn't want to disrupt my happiness, right? This is exactly what we do and what Peter has done. You know, my wife and I, we've been married five years now, coming up, almost five years. And I can remember before we got married, we did um, premarital counseling, which was... um, a lot of fun. Um, that's where basically uh, you begin to put everything out on the table that you didn't know that you were thinking and feeling and just let the explosions happen right in front of you. But anyway, um, when we first were going through marriage counseling, uh, the minister sat us down and he looked at both of us and he says, okay, here's the first question. Why do y'all want to get married to each other? And Catherine answered first. And she said, well, it's because Matt is my best friend and I love him. And he's the greatest and, you know, all the stuff that the minister already knew. And uh, (laughs) so so she kept going. And, uh, 
Now, what if when it was my turn, he says, okay, Matt, well, why do you want to marry her? And I said, well, um, it's because Catherine will stay up uh, to midnight with me playing video games and <laughs> eating hot wings, and uh, she loves watching zombie movies with me. Now, if I were to say that in that moment, Catherine would interject and go, um, I hate video games, I don't like hot wings, not a fan of zombie movies. Like, what are you talking about? What if I were to go, but that's just how I like to think of you. <laughs> I mean, do you see how, do you see how delusional this is? How, how, how messed up this would be? She would say, you are out of touch with reality. Uh, you, you don't just get to decide what I am like. But that's exactly what we do with Jesus, isn't it? We say, you know, I like to think of you like this, I like to think of you like this, and we totally disregard what Scripture says he is actually like. And the reason that we do this is so that we can avoid who he really is. We can avoid and evade the true God. Because let's be honest, a cardboard cutout will not talk back to you. But of course, that's the reason why many of our relationships with Jesus is so shallow and it is so plastic because that's what we are doing. We are not actually relating to him as he actually is. So that's Peter's answer. What is Jesus' answer? Well, he affirms that he is the Christ. He is the one who is to come and to redeem the world. He is the Son of Man, which is a technical term, basically meaning that he is the, the, the promised king to come. But the way that he is going to redeem the world, the necessary way, is through suffering. It's through death. That's what he's come to do. That is who Jesus is in Jesus' own words. So the next question I want to answer is, okay, if that's who Jesus is, then who are we in light of who Jesus is? Okay? So this is the second question. I'll be brief on this, I promise. Who are we in light of who Jesus is? Because this question really does change everything, and it should change everything about us. Because if Jesus really is this total delusional nutcase, then we should just dismiss him and shut down RUF and not even entertain looking at this book anymore. But if he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who is to come to fix all things, then, then this doesn't only change how we view him, but this changes everything about us and you and me and our lives together. This changes everything. Here's how. You know, I, I've been thinking about this question all week. Why was Peter so just adamantly opposed to the idea of Jesus being a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior? Why was, Jesus, I mean, why was Peter so allergic to that? And I've been thinking about that, and here's, why I, here's what I think is the reason. It's because losing sucks. Losing sucks. Nobody wants to follow a loser. You want to be winning, like Charlie Sheen. <laughs> you want to be winning. Nobody wants to follow a loser. And in fact, many of y'all have felt that over the past few weeks with your basketball brackets, right? When your team loses, it's like, ah, you feel the angst. And even if you are rooting for like a loser team, like Butler, then uh, you still want them to win. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> that they're underdogs. I just mean that they're underdogs, that, they're, that they're, they don't have the big powerhouse programs like Duke. You know what I mean? When you're, when you're cheering for the underdogs, you still want them to win. I still want... I, I'm a Butler fan. Why are y'all yelling at me? You want Butler to win, even though they're losers compared to these big powerhouses. Quote me. But here's the deal. Nobody wants to follow a loser because losing actually sucks. And here's the thing. Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, I know you want to win, 
but I'm about to go lose. I am here to lose. I am here to die. That is the game plan. Uh, uh, And we hate this. We hate death. But Jesus is saying, look, the pathway to get to life and the pathway to get to resurrection is death. The pathway to winning is losing. The pathway to victory is defeat. That is how it works. That is what Jesus is saying. And this is the reason why we hate this and Peter hates this and you hate this and I hate this is because we do not like death and weakness and awkwardness. We want wealth and safety and power and comfort. That's what we're in on. That's what we want. And Jesus is saying, look, I can give you all of that. I can give you the life. I can give you the comfort. I can give you the safety. But you have to know that the way to get there is by following me through this path. And this path is the pathway of death and of suffering. That's the game plan. I mean, look at what he says in verse 34. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus was killed on Good Friday. Three days later, Resurrection Sunday. That is the pattern. Death and then life. Death and then resurrection. The cross comes before the crown. This is why Rebecca Black is a good theologian. (laughs) Y'all know Rebecca Black? You've seen the video on YouTube? Friday, 66 million hits when I looked at it today. You know the one, fun, fun, fun? Let let me tell you how she very poetically breaks this thing down. (laughs) Yesterday was Thursday, Thursday. (laughs) Today is Friday, Friday. We, we, we so excited. (laughs) We so excited, we're going to have a ball today. And here's where it gets... Here's where it gets poetic. (laughs) Tomorrow is Saturday, and Sunday comes afterwards. That's why she's a good theologian. Sunday comes after Friday. That's the pattern. Death, afterwards, life. That is the pattern. And here's the thing. Here's what God does. He puts you and me in places and positions where we have to die in order to actually find life. Because that's exactly what he did with Jesus. The way to love our neighbor is the the pathway of actually death. That's what it's going to take to love our neighbor. That's what it's going to take to actually find life. And so what would it look like for you and me to actually embrace this and to live this kind of Jesus path of death and then life? Here's a few things that I think it would mean. It would mean when you're having a conversation with somebody, you don't hijack the conversation and make it about you and tell your stories and just sort of override them, but you actually engage them with questions about them. Make the conversation about them. That in that conversation, that little micro bubble right there, you are dying to your agenda so that they can find life and feel like somebody knows me, somebody loves me. You die in that conversation. That's what it could look like. Another way that it could look like is that you're just recklessly generous with your money. With your meal plan, you know, with your meal points, you have leftover stuff. People are, you know, at the bottom of the barrel and you've got excess that you, that you help them. 
that you're even generous with your time, with your gifts, with your talents in a way that you're sort of throwing out your resources and your gifts so that other people can flourish. You die, you sacrifice for the sake of others. Here's another way, is that you do not live your entire life fighting to be thrust into the spotlight, but you actually live your entire life to serve others so that they can be in the spotlight. You die to the glory for someone else to get it. You know, you can even do this here at RUF, like tonight, when you see somebody across the room who's sitting by themselves, standing by themselves, and you think, uh, I really just want to hang out where it's comfortable with all of my friends and not go talk to them. But you could actually die to yourself in that moment and walk across the room and introduce yourself so that they don't feel like they're alone. But you feel like, okay, this may feel awkward. This may be a little strange sort of starting this, but I'm going to die to my social agenda tonight for the benefit of somebody else. You can do this in all sorts of ways, the macro and the micro. You know, you know what else this looks like? Continuing to love your roommate or that person on your hall that you know is unbelievably unlovable, where, where you try to love them, you try to be friends with them, and they just drain you and empty everything that you have. You, of course, know that's exactly how Jesus loved you, right? It took him draining and emptying his entire self to love his neighbor, to love you. This is the pattern. Death, then life. Sacrifice, weakness, losing. Let me just read you a quote from this book that I've been reading recently called Surprised by Grace. It's a story basically about um, uh, the book of Jonah. It's a a fascinating uh, book. Let me just read you what he says. He says, Jesus came to show us that the gospel explains success in terms of giving, not taking. Self-sacrifice, not self-protection. Going to the back, not getting to the front. The gospel shows that we win by losing, we triumph through defeat, we achieve power through service, and we become rich by giving ourselves away. That is the pattern. If you will not die, then you will not truly live. If you will not die, then you will not truly be alive. I mean, as Jesus puts it right there in verse 35, he says, if you want to save your life, protect your life, have your whole life revolve around you kind of being comfortable, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Jesus and the gospel will save it. Now, I know some of you are going, and rightly so, how in the world do I do this? How in the world do I get the power to live like this? Because... I'll be honest, I like comfort, I like money, I like safety, I like power, I like influence, I like all these things. I'm not a fan of the weakness and the death and the poverty and all that stuff. So how do I get the power to actually live this thing out? Here's how. You get the power to live this out when you go back and rightly answer that first question of who Jesus is. That's where you get the power. Because I know some of you are answering that question who is Jesus? And you say, well, he is my example. And you're right. I mean, he, he is. He, he gave himself away for the benefit of other people. If that is all Jesus is, is just your example, then that is not good news. That is a crushing burden for you to feel like, okay, I've got to live up to that standard. I've got to be generous like that. I've, I've, got, to be, I've got to give away all my stuff like that. I mean, I you would just constantly be crushed over and over and feel guilty over and over because you can't do it like Jesus did. Do you see how this is just a crushing burden? And in fact, if you really choose to only view Jesus as your example, 
then your life will still be basically revolved around you. Your life will be about you, about your career, and maybe every now and then you'll throw a few quarters to the poor, but basically your life will be about you and it'll be miserable. Jesus is our example, but he is not merely our example. So here's how you get the power. The way that you begin to get the power to do this is when you see that Jesus is not just somebody who's died for people, but when you say that Jesus has died for me. Jesus is not just my example. Jesus is my substitute. He stood in the place of cursing so that I could stand in the place of blessing. He he gave it all away so that I could get it all. That is the transaction here. He is not just my example. He is my substitute. We have traded places at the cross. Let me try and paint it in these terms. Since we're still in basketball season, let let me try and frame it like this. Let's say for whatever reason, I'm in the NBA and I'm playing, I just got laughter for that. I, um, let's say I'm playing with the Heat and I'm playing with LeBron, he's on my team and we're out there and we're playing together and of course because I'm me and you should laugh at me, I'm, you know, I'm bouncing the ball off of my feet, I'm throwing up bricks, I'm just getting owned in the paint, I'm just you know, it's being miserable. And LeBron, of course, is having like the night of his life. He's dropping 45 points, triple-double. He's just owning people, right? Let's say after the game, ESPN.com, you check it, and a few hours later, the main headline, top, is Matt Howell. Who is this incredible basketball phenom? And, it, and, and you see my name, and underneath it are all of these stats, and there it is, my points, 45 points, you know, rebounds, 21. I mean, I'm having all of LeBron's stats under my name. And then the article underneath it is, LeBron totally sucked it up tonight. Because <laughs> that would be, you know, what the thing would be. And, uh, and underneath his name, all of my stats, zero points, zero rebounds, you know, whatever. How is this possible? Well, if you look at the picture online, our jerseys had been switched. And the whole time that I was playing, on the back it said LeBron James. And the whole time he was playing... It said Matt Howell. And that's what happens in the gospel. Here's how. Just as I got all of the benefits of LeBron's performance, and I got none of the criticism, none of the penalty of my own, and just as he got all of the penalty and all of the criticism for my performance, and I got all the benefit of his, that is the same way it works with Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus and who he really is, your substitute... This is what happens. You get all of the benefit, all of the credit for his performance, perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, and he gets all of the criticism for yours. This is what Martin Luther meant when he said uh, that, uh, that this is the great exchange. Jesus on the cross is being blamed for our sin, and we are receiving the credit for his performance. That is it. Now, here's where you get the power. When you begin to live out of that that is where you actually now begin to get the power to do this. Here's how. Because if your significance in your identity is already settled in Jesus, you no longer feel the pressure to win. You can give up your fight for first place. You can give up your money. Think about it like this. When you are full, when you are absolutely full with food and you've still got food on your plate, you are free to give it away to others. But if you are starving, you are going to be desperate for more and more food. And so this is saying, because of what Jesus has done for you, you have it all. And now you are free to give it all away. 
It is that secure. When you have everything, all of your needs met in Jesus, you are now free to give everything away. You no longer have to generate your own significance, generate your own identity, generate, have all the pressure to live up to this, this standard that you'll never be able to, but you have it already in Jesus. And now you can live sort of the Jesus way of death for the life of you and the life of others. And so here's how I want to end this. I just want to leave you with a question. And it's the question of this text. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does RUF say Jesus is? Who does my church, what does my family think about who Jesus is? Who do you personally, you individually, who do you say Jesus is? And as C.S. Lewis says, your options is that he's a liar, he's crazy, or he is the Lord of the universe. And if he's that last one, then what might that mean about your life? How might that change your life? That's the question I want to leave you with. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth and uh, the reality and the beauty of who your son Jesus is. Uh, Not only the Christ, not only uh, the Son of God, not only the Son of Man, but our Savior, the one who is our substitute, who gives us the power uh, to die for others because that is the way that you have uh, treated us. Thank you for your grace and thank you for tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.